despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and our sorrows, yet we see him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we have gone astray like sheep and turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all on him. Good evening. My name is Steve Johnson. I'm one of the pastors here at Illuminate. And uh, tonight as we enter what is the biggest weekend for Christians around the world, we're going to remember the most important person in history and perhaps the most important event in history, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. For your sins and for mine. Now, many people might expect that tonight what we're going to do is we're going to recount the story of Jesus' final hours, and we're going to go through all the glory details of the cross, the suffocating death, and, and having his hands and feet nailed to the cross, and all those glory details. But we're not going to do that tonight. If you want to get into that, you can go home and watch The Passion of the Christ this weekend, um, when you get the chance. The reality is, is that the manner of Jesus' death is ultimately not the most important thing, even though it was a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. You see, crucifixion was a normal form of execution in Jesus' day. But what is important, and what's most important to remember tonight, is that Jesus died for our sins, your sins and my sins. And I'm pretty sure of all the things that you came to church to hear tonight, um, sin and death were probably not high on your list. Uh, what, and you ask the question, well, what do you mean by sin, Steve, for some of those of you that don't understand what sin is? Well, you may know the answer to that. Sin is basically anything that goes against God's word, the Bible, God's will, what he wants for us, and God's way, what Jesus would do if he were in our midst. And the truth is, I think a lot of us are haunted by our sin, not really knowing how to deal with it. Now, you may have come tonight, and you're probably dealing with some sin in your life right now, some anger, some bitterness, maybe some sexual immorality, uh, and maybe you've even come out of guilt tonight thinking that by coming to church, you'll somehow feel better about yourself and your sin. Sin and death. Wait a minute, Steve. I, I thought this was about love. Okay, let's talk about it all. Let's talk about sin and death and love tonight. Because you really can't understand with one without the other. And that's why we have verses like John 3.16 that many of us know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And how about 1 John 3.16? By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. It's impossible to truly understand the crucifixion of Jesus Christ without fully understanding the love that put Jesus to death on the cross. 
Because you see, the death of Christ is as much about God's love as it is about the crucifixion. Well, how's that, Steve? If you have your Bibles, open up to 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. We're going to hear the words of an aging John. He's probably somewhere between 70 and 80 years old at this point. He's the same John who wrote the book of John. He witnessed all the events of that, quote, Good Friday, Thursday, Friday, and through the Resurrection Sunday, wrote the entire book about it, and he witnessed all of that. And yet in this one verse, verse, chapter, uh, verse 10 of chapter 4 of 1 John, he can summarize what the gospel writers took chapters and chapters to recount. 1 John 4, 10. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and had sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. I'd like to take a couple minutes this evening and walk slowly, kind of stroll through this one verse and understand why it's so important tonight that we understand what the Apostle John is saying. He starts out the verse by saying, In this is love. Not the kind of love that maybe most of us think about. It's the Greek word agape. You've heard that word before, agape. Um, it simply means love. In secular Greek at the time of Christ, it really didn't have any deep meaning in the society, um, and it was used frequently as a synonym for eros, which is sensual love, and phileo, which is the love of friends or the lo love of family. It had a nuance, though, and it was the idea of love for the sake of its object. And I think perhaps because of its neutrality and maybe for a little bit of this slight nuance, nuance that the biblical writers used agape to describe many forms of human love. But the gospel writers chose in Scripture to refer to it most importantly as God's selfless, sacrificial love. One that says that I have decided in my will to meet your best needs and interests, no matter what it costs me. John says this is sacrificial love. What is? Well, if you look two verses before that, you see in verse 8, he says, God is love. It's one of his attributes. It's who God is. God is love. A God who's willing to meet your best needs and interests no matter what it costs him. You see, love reflects who God is, and it also reflects what God does. God is love, and therefore he acts lovingly, unlike us who often act unlovingly to the people that are close to us. And that's why he says in the next phrase, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. Love begins with God. It never begins with you or me. It always begins with God. God is love himself. It's his character. And his character of love defines that term. And because he's love, he initiates and acts toward an undeserving world by sending his son, Jesus Christ, into the world from, to save us from our sins and reconcile us, bring us back to God. You see, love didn't wait for you to get your life in order, to come to your senses, to find enough ways to please him by saying or doing the things that you think would somehow make up for the ways in which you violated his word, his will, or his way. 
Romans 5 says it very clearly, why we were still ungodly, why we were sinners. And even while we were enemies, Christ died for us, the ungodly. God takes the initiative towards us in love. Even though we betray him, we rebel against him, and he provides exactly what you and I need. Well, what is that? Look at the last phrase there in the verse. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's what you and I need, propitiation. Now, I understand it's hard to pronounce. It's probably impossible for any of us to spell if we were to close our Bibles and try to spell it. It only appears four times in the entire New Testament. And it literally means a sacrifice of atonement. Some Bible uh, translations translated as expiation. I prefer the ESV version, which is the P word, propitiation. It means averting or diverting the wrath of God by means of a sacrificial gift. In the New Testament, propitiation refers to the turning away of the wrath of God as the just judgment of our sin by God's own provision of the sacrificial gift of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Okay, Steve, so why is propitiation necessary? It's hard for me to say it still. Why is it so necessary? Well, several reasons. Number one, God is holy, and you and I are sinful. Hard truth, but a real truth. In Leviticus chapter 19, God says, I, the Lord God, am holy. Holy, set apart, otherly, sinless, perfect. Of all his attributes, like love here in 1 John, his holiness is mentioned more than any other in the Bible. Of all his attributes. In the words of our own Dr. Wayne Grudem, God's holiness means that he's separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor. It contains two qualities, a relational quality and a moral quality. The relational quality is that God is separated from sin relationally in that he does not sin and can be in no way related to sin. The moral quality is that God is morally separated from sin and he's completely devoted to doing that which is good and right and true for his own honor. I love the book, The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer, and he says in his book, holy is the way God is. To be holy, he does not conform to a standard. He is that standard. He is absolutely holy with an infinite, incomprehensible fullness of purity that is incapable of being other than it is. Because he is holy, all his attributes are holy. That is, whatever we think as a belonging to God must be thought of as holy. God is holy. God is also just. He's always impartial. He's always fair, giving equal treatment to absolutely everyone. The prophet Isaiah says that the Lord is a God of justice, and he executed equally among all people. In Zephaniah, we have even a, a clearer picture where Zephaniah says, God does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. God is holy. God is just. And because he's holy and just, God hates sin. Wait a minute, Steve. In this verse, it talks about God's love. I didn't think that God hated. I thought that God loves people. 
He does, but he hates sin. Psalm 35, the 45, the psalmist says, you've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And you and I, we should hate sin too. Abuse, murder, rape, we can go on. If you want a couple of good li lists of what God hates in terms of sins, go to Proverbs chapter 6 this evening. Or look at Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through, through, through 21. God is holy, God is just, and because he's holy and just, God hates sin. And you know what? We're sinful. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have and we will still continue to violate God's word, his will, and his way. Maybe another way of saying it this evening for the sake of our discussion is to use the term wrath. That's what we get as a result of his holiness and our sin. Romans 1 says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. We don't want to talk about it much. We'd rather stay on the surface. We prefer to see God as a grandpa or maybe a life coach or, or a big brother. Someone that if we come to church will walk away feeling like we've been hugged and we go on our way. Did you know that the term wrath is used, they use 20 different words in the Old Testament along, and it's used over 600 times. It's an important issue for God. Think about God's wrath in the Old Testament, if you will, for a minute. Think about the flood where he wipes out humanity. Think about Sodom and Gomorrah that he reduces to dust. Think about the battle at the end times where scores, myriads and myriads of people will find an end of their life. You see, the wrath of God is the just expression of his holiness in the face of our sin. Wrath is what we justly deserve for violating his will, his word, his will, and his way. And according to Romans chapter 6, verse 23, our wrath is death, eternal separation from God. Great news, Steve. Thanks for doing that. I feel encouraged now. Shall we go home? We got a problem here. You see, because if this is true, that his wrath has to be poured out on sin, where does the love aspect come in? It? How can he deal with sin, expressing his wrath, and still love us at the same time? How can God do that? Propitiation, the P word. Propitiation means to divert. To avert the wrath of God, placing sin on one who's a substitute so that the sin is lifted off and removed from the guilty person, the one who sinned, the one who deserves death. Last night, um, I got home a little early, so I had the opportunity to turn on the four-hour movie, The Ten Commandments. How many of you seen The Ten Commandments? Yeah, a few of you. Well, if you're younger and you haven't seen it, it's a long movie, but it's worth it. It's really one of the first movies that uses special effects that came out in the 60s. And in the movie, Moses, played by Charlton Heston, is chosen by God to lead millions of Jews out of bondage in, in Egypt because Egypt had been treating them in sin, as slaves. And so God has to somehow pour out his wrath on the sin of Egypt. So 
Moses, after wandering in the wilderness for a while, comes back into Egypt. He faces Pharaoh. He brings a few plagues on the people of, of Egypt. And Pharaoh hardens his heart against Moses and against the people of Israel and starts to deal with them even in a, in a, in a worse manner. And then he says, he basically contemns himself and his own people in Egypt. The ultimate last plague was that death would come to the firstborn of every household of Egypt and Israel because of the sin. In order to propitiate their sin, the Jews were told to find an animal, to sacrifice that animal, confess their sins, and then wipe the blood on the door frames of their houses so that when the, in the movie, the green cloud, the green fog, when, when the cloud of death comes through Egypt, it would pass by those doors that had blood on the door frames. The result, the wrath of God was propitiated. The substitute, the sacrificed animal, paid the penalty for their sin. And when they celebrate Passover today, that's what they're celebrating. They're celebrating the fact that God passed over their sin by providing a substitute to take their place because they deserved the penalty. And, and propitiation played a huge role in the life of Israel for generations. Whenever a, a Jew would sin and they felt like they needed to confess their sin and get right with God, they would take an animal to the temple that... Put the, the, they, they'd give the animal to a priest who was the mediator between man and God, and he'd place it on the altar. He'd sacrifice the animal, and as the blood would pour out, the people's sin would be forgiven. His justice, the wrath, would be poured out on the animal. And Yom Kippur, which is their high holy day for Jews even today, the whole nation would gather together at the temple they would confess their sins, and the high priest would do the same thing. The high priest who was the mediator would take an animal. He would go into the Holy of Holies, confess the sins of the people, and he'd put an unblemished lamb, one that was spotless, one that was perfect, and he'd put it on the altar, and he would put it to death. And as the blood would pour over the side of the altar, God's wrath for the people's sin was diverted to the substitute. Why all this blood? Why did Jesus have to die on the cross and spill his blood? Well, the author of Hebrew tells us pretty, quick, pretty clearly that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. The Old Testament is all about propitiation until Jesus comes on the scene in the New Testament. And one of the first things that we hear out of the mouth of Jesus' followers comes from the Apostle John. And what does he say? Behold what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And that's how, Jesus, that's how John introduces Jesus. So we see in the last phrase here of, of chapter 4, verse 10, that he sent his son to be the propitiation for his sins. Not a propitiation, not one of many. He is the only propitiation for our sins. Only Jesus can propitiate 
the wrath of God that you and I deserve because of our sins. The only, excuse me, the only satisfaction, the only propitiation that could be acceptable God and that could reconcile you and me to our Creator had to be made by God and sent by God and ultimately through love killed by God. And for this reason, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world in human flesh in order to be the perfect sacrifice for sin and to make atonement for our sins. As the author of Hebrews says, he had to be made in the likeness of his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Christ, having been offered once, bore the sins of many. Everything that happened on the cross to Jesus, it should have happened to you and me, to me. But love crossed the chasm between God's holiness and our sin. Our sins have racked up a spiritual debt to God that we could never pay back. And it's a, it's a debt that you and I keep adding to each and every day, and the chasm gets a little bit wider. You might think that you can settle your bill with God by being religious or doing good works, coming to church, reading your Bible, even praying maybe, not knowing what you're doing, or giving money to the, to the church or doing some good works. Maybe you think that if just somehow you can be a little bit better than the others around you, God's going to take notice and he'll, he'll give you his approval and he'll overlook your sin. But you know what? It just doesn't happen that way. God doesn't grade on a curve. Perfect sinlessness is his one standard. And by that standard, even our best good works are what the scripture calls filthy rags. Nothing you can do, nothing you can offer can pay back the debt you owe to God. And this is the payment. The payment for all of this is God's wrath. But on this day, centuries ago, God demonstrated on the cross his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God displayed the magnitude of his love, not by breaking the law, but by keeping the law and satisfying it. And he satisfied it in the most painful way possible, by loading up upon his very own son the complete weight of our sin and then pouring out his holy, just wrath on him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You know, on the cross, when Jesus says to Telestai, it is finished, literally, it's paid in full. When he died, the propitiation was complete. What's our response to all of this as we think about reflecting on this, this evening, what this day means to us? Whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The only logical response is for us to acknowledge our sin.
because you and I have violated his word, his will, and his way. And accept the propitiation of Jesus Christ on the cross as the full and final payment for your sins, past, present, and future. For those of you that are believers this evening, two things. John goes on to say in the next verse, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That means that you and I have the power because of God's love and the command, the call, to love those who we think are unlovable. An ex-spouse, parents, children, an ex-friend, a son, daughter, maybe someone you don't like at school. Christ died and paid for whatever they've done to you. So you ought to love one another. Make the decision of your will to reach out to them and meet their best needs and interests, no matter what it costs. Tonight we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's a time of remembering the propitiation of Jesus Christ on the cross. It should be a special celebration of how God's love has crossed the chasm between his holiness and our sin by making Jesus the propitiation for that sin. And as you do this evening, as we reflect, remember the words of the Apostle John. In this is love. Not that you've loved him, but that he loved you and sent his son to be the propitiation of your sins. Love with a capital P. Let's pray. If you're here this evening and this is new to you, you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm not sure that the message could be any clearer. God is holy and we're not. And yet his son, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be that propitiation for your sin, to turn away God's wrath, that you might have an intimate, never-ending relationship with the God of the universe through his son, Jesus Christ. Would you be willing this evening to acknowledge your sin? If so, say it to God. Are you willing to accept his free gift, the propitiation of your sins, to satisfy his wrath? Also a free gift of his deep, deep love for you. Then tell him. Pray with me. Father, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. I recognize you're holy and just and that I have a problem. I can't cross that chasm. So, Father, I ask that you apply the propitiation of Jesus Christ to my life and draw me in to that personal, intimate, never-ending relationship with you through your Son, Jesus Christ. And, Lord, for those of us that know you, pray that as we reflect upon the verses that are coming up on the screen that we will celebrate that we'll celebrate your deep, deep love that sent your son out of love 
to the cross. And if you prayed that prayer this evening for the first time, take the card that was on your chair and circle the little cross in the right-hand corner of the, that card or come up to me afterwards and, and let's talk. This could be the beginning of something awesome for you. Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for this evening. Thank you for the cross. And most importantly, thank you for your love. Through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, God's people said, Amen.